my ideas come from life just just living, you know what I'm saying? I get my best ideas when I'm doing something just random. I might be driving down the street, see a sign, and I'm like, that you know, just might spark a whole idea. Welcome to the Idea Generation Podcast, a show about creative entrepreneurship. My name is Noah Callahan-Bever, and each week I'll be speaking with some of the most innovative ideators in culture and trying to figure out how they make their creative decisions. This week, I'm talking to Hitboy. This podcast is brought to you by the good people at Shopify. Feeling that entrepreneurial itch? Turn your passion into a business with Shopify. They've got everything you need to start, run, or grow your business. Check out shopify.com idea to learn more. Chauncey Hitboy Hollis got his introduction to the music industry at an early age when his uncle, Rodney Benford, of the R&B group Troop, gave him a glimpse of success and the lifestyle that was possible. Soon, what started as writing rhymes in his room evolved into making beats on his computer and connecting with both like-minded upstarts and production heavyweights on MySpace. By 2006, the 18-year-old would be on his own on a path to success in music. What did your parents do for work, and how did that inform your own career ambitions? Uh, my mom, she... She was a young mom, you know. She had me uh, at 16, so I, we kind of grew up together. And um, she, like, she'd been doing daycare for a long time. That's kind of like, you know, the, the the what I can remember the most of her doing. But other than that, we was like, um, we used to live with my uncle when I was little. He was in an R&B group called Troop, so we kind of had it easy early in my life, from like probably like one to like five, and then. The struggle hit once the industry started changing and things wasn't working out with his group. We had to go get our own spot, and yeah, we was you know just really thugging. And then as far as my pops, he he uh, you know he was 15 when I was born, and he uh, was you know in the selling drugs like real heavy, a uh, late 80s, early 90s, and ended up getting locked up in 91. So. He's pretty much been locked up my whole life. Like he's got out for little small stints, like a year, not even, I can't even remember like two full years he's been out my whole life. So, you know, I definitely had a, a crazy, crazy upbringing. Would you say your uncle was the one though that sort of opened your eyes to the potential of music? Yeah, that was 100%. My uncle Rodney, that was my first uh, introduction to like, the lifestyle, you know, just not even outside the industry stuff. <clears throat> I remember, you know, he had his bread up, so he would throw parties and he had nice cars and a bunch of girls and all this stuff. And I was just like, wow, like he, he really living that life, you know? Did you learn how to play music or instruments or anything like that as a kid? Um, no, I didn't. I just <clears throat> more so... You know, I got to go to video shoots. I would go to the studio here and there, but just really seeing the lifestyle part of it, um, not understanding how much hard work it took for real to really be in this. And uh, yeah, um, I don't know. I just was motivated just by everything I was seeing that he was doing just lifestyle wise. So when you're 13 years old, you pick up the pen and start writing raps for the first time. Mm -hmm. What were you trying to express? <clears throat> Man, really... Uh, it was a mix between like you know real life and then just exaggerating stuff, trying to be like people I saw on BET and when all these like young rappers was coming up and you had 106 in Park and all these uh, shows on BET. Like I was just trying to be like them for real and you know obviously <clears throat> from seeing my uncle, like I knew it could be a reality, but I just was like I don't know how to get 
there, you know? So I, I kind of looked at it at first, like, you just get in the game and then you famous and you on, like, you know what I'm saying? I didn't know that it take real hard work to really, really be on top. And And how were you, what was the character that you were conjuring in those first songs that you were writing? Um, it had to be like between like what Juvenile and the Hot Boys was doing mixed with like NWA. Like I remember uh, <clears throat> my mom found like my my notebook with a bunch of my rhymes and I was just cussing and saying a bunch of crazy shit and she really had a conversation with me like you don't even have to express yourself that way basically. And uh, yeah, it just opened my eyes to like, you know, trying to say something in a way that was, you know, more than surface level. So um, at 15, you befriend uh, someone who is making beats, making songs, making full albums from what you were saying. Mm -hmm. um, sort of how did you get into the flow with him to start working? Uh, my uncle actually introduced me to him. He, he met him through somebody he knew. and uh, Was he an adult? No, he was my age. Okay. Was, that, that was the crazy thing, because I'm like, this kid is my age, 15. He got the whole setup. <clears throat> he had Acid Pro. He had FL Studio. And he was in his mom's like crib just making projects. I was blown away by that at the time. And um, um, I just really just got in the groove like by just pulling up. I just, like, any, any chance I got on the weekend, like, after school, whatever, just pulling up, trying to, you know, rap on something, write, write a verse, write a song, whatever it would, you know, would turn into. So how did you make the transition from wanting to be the front-facing artist to then making beats? Man, I never looked at it like, oh, the artist is in front or whatever the case is. I just literally started messing with the beats, just playing around in his crib. Like, I used to watch him make beats. And uh, just the way FL looked, like, it, it, I was attracted to, like, what was going on and he, how he would put a sound in there and turn it into a whole beat. And um, I just literally was messing around and um, fell in love with it. I wanted to get my own computer immediately and put FL on it and Acid Pro, and that's exactly what I did. And I just took it to a different level, I guess. I just had a different passion, a different level of passion than everybody around me. Was there a specific beat that you made that made you feel like you had the confidence to pursue this as, as a real life ambition? Man, I think I saw the beat. I mean, like, Dom Kennedy got a line from one of our songs uh, called Tupac, a half a mil song. And he says, hit boy got beats, but for real, he a hustler. So out of my first 10 beats, I, I like sold one of those beats. So it was like, when I sold a beat, I'm like, shit, this is, this is it. You know what I'm saying? Even though I only sold it for like 20 bucks. <laughs> this was 2003. Who'd you sell it to? Just some kid that went to my high school, he found out I was recording and made beats. I actually used to sell my CDs at school, so he knew I did music, but he used to ask me for beats, and I was like, I brought some beats to school, or however we used to do it on CD at the time, and he, he bought a beat from me. So then from there, you end up getting on MySpace and putting some tracks up there, and you and was you were you had a partner who was the other, there was two hit boys yeah, at one exactly. point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was... Um, yeah, me and this kid from the IE, he lived in Fontana, and I had met him after the first dude I knew that I was in a group with. I met him, and he was the person that kind of opened up my eyes to musicality because he played all his life in church from, like, 19 years old, so he was cold on the keys. And that was something that I wasn't tapped in with yet, just, like, really understanding musicality. And I think uh, our connection was solely for me to understand that because... 
you know, I introduced him to some people that I knew he had no connection to. Those people ended up signing him, kicking me to the curb. And I was destroyed at that time. I was just like, damn, like, you know, that was my boy. It was hit boys. Like, we was everywhere together working. And that really opened my eyes to be like, I got to just get just get on a different grind and I got to really just focus on myself. You know what I'm saying? So how do you get from there to having Polo Don reach out cold um, into your DMs? MySpace, I, um, I followed him. I didn't, I didn't DM or message him. He just, I just uh, followed him, and he, uh, I had found out. I, I had heard the London Bridge song that he produced for Fergie on the radio. Found him on MySpace. And I was like, this dude fire. So he ended up just hitting me. I guess he went to my page, saw some beats, saw what I was doing, and he was like, shit, we should work together. I came to Chalice the 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 first night we met. We went to Record Plant. That's like five minutes up the street. Then we came over here. He was working on Pussycat Dolls, and Sean Garrett was in here writing. So I'm like 19 years old. Like you know, I was really tapped in on like who the, the current writers and producers were. So it was mind blowing for me. Did you feel like you had made it at that point? Um, I didn't feel like I made it, but I felt like something was on the horizon. Like, I'm like, Polo's doing crazy stuff, working with all these pop acts, and he had Rich Boy, he just had a lot going. So, you know, I knew I was in the right realm to 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 go towards what I was trying to get to. He probably just saw that I was a young dude, hungry. He saw that I was, uh, you know, updating my page with different beats, and um, yeah, he probably just was like, man, this kid got something. He probably, I'm sure he saw something in me that I didn't even see. So, um, at what point do you end up signing your first paperwork? Uh, shit, like eight or nine months after I met Paul, or maybe close to a year. And yeah. what what was that? Was that a publishing deal or that was a publishing deal? Yeah. And that's the the one with Universal. Mm-hmm. UMPG. Yep. We end up doing the deal, Copub, and yeah, that's that, that. That was a long time, long stretch from '07 till just getting a new deal like a few months ago. Like it took me 14 years and a bunch of hits. I got Diamond Records. I got three Grammys, and it, you know, it just still like the way they word certain things in contracts. It, it won't necessarily compute the same as the actual progress. That's what's messed up. When you got offered that deal. You had had a couple placements only? I had no placements. No placements? No, I had no placements. So then how did you even finesse getting a, a pub, pub deal at that point? Polo was powerful. He had the connects. He was locked in. And um, somebody had actually offered me a pub deal, and they was, like, it was a super low ball number. And when Polo came and told me that he had 50K for me, I was like, what? Like, my, my, I never seen that type of bread, like, probably on a personal level especially, but, yeah, that just was, it was like, wow, this is for real. How long after you signed did you start to regret it? Man, not till Niggas in Paris came out, and I didn't, I didn't even know my deal was bad until then, you know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't, because <clears throat> I'm like, you know, once that came out, I'm like, okay, where's where the real bread at? Like, where's the level up? And they like, well, here's the contract, and it's it's saying all these things to where you know, it's not it's not gonna advance you through your deal and let you get a new advance or get a new situation, uh, you know, as as quickly as you like to. When that happened, were you more frustrated with the people around you or with yourself? 
it was a mix of everything. I went through so many emotions, like dealing with this pub deal. I didn't have blow ups with so many lawyers, so many managers, Polo himself, like UNPG. Like, you know, I had to put that message out because I felt backed into a corner. I put I put a message out talking about my, my deal and inspired a lot of people. I've seen a lot of creatives tapping in, a lot of people texting me, calling me, DMing me, like, man, like, you really on the forefront of, like, you know, keeping it real about what's going on. So, um, yeah, it just was a mixture of everything, man, just really having to look and be like, okay, so this is how the industry works, and this is what the real bullshit is. Yeah. So you sign this deal. You're working under Polo at this point. Yeah. Um, and you, start, you do start getting some placements, though. Mm-hmm. In that 2006-2007 era, how did one even go about getting their records to people? Man, I mean, <clears throat> like, uh, the pub, my pub deal was like, you know, it's been a gift and a curse, but the right people being around me and, and having the right connections with the right writers, I just was able to get some beats to these writers who did a crazy song. Jennifer Lopez heard it, and she ended up recording it. I still never met her to this day, and, and she bought my first professional beat ever. That's crazy. <laughs> That's wild. When you think about that pub deal, again, like you said, at nineteen, fifty thousand dollars seems like an unimaginably big amount of money. Mm-hmm. When you reflect on it fourteen years later, how much do you think you left on the table? Man, it's uh, you know that's something that you can't even really calculate, you know, because it just is what it is. But um, back in the day, it probably wasn't that bad of a deal because of how the game went, and it was like it would benefit you more to even just get a placement on an album. Like, you know, albums were selling at the time. Like, you know, people were still buying CDs. So, you know, the game ended up shifting within a few years and shit just turned different. At what point do you become introduced to Kanye and and the Good Music family? I had moved to Atlanta like 07 to 09 and we would fly out here to work at studios in LA, like me, Polo, Chasing Cash, the whole squad, Esther Dean, and we would come to like Chalice or Record Plant. And I used to go to record, we used to love Record Plant, me and Chase, like we used to be there for weeks at a time. And we just ran into Kanye being in the hallway. Like that's how it used to be over there. Like you might see Pharrell, you might see Kanye just in there going crazy. And we uh, we ended up connecting. Um, I, I would, uh, I, I had gave him a CD of Beats don't know if he ever heard that first CD, but uh, one time I came in there and I had <clears throat> I, I had met Pharrell through working on Tiana Taylor when she was like 16, 17. And uh, so we was like, you know, kind of cool. So he was working there and Kanye was working up there at the same time. I had some uh, beat CD, asked him if I, if I could play a beat. First beat I played, they freestyled to the whole beat, like from the time it came on till it went off. And that was mind blowing alone, but we didn't end up actually <clears throat> working on anything. Everything with Polo, he was starting to come out to LA more. He wasn't around as much. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna just go back to the crib and just, you know, go crazy. Long story short, uh, one of my boys, uh, my boy Dollar, ended up introducing me to Ricky, Kanye's cousin. And um, I would just, you know, Ricky, you know, told me Kanye was looking for stuff for my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. This was when he was still working on it. I kept sending beats, just kept sending them. Didn't think nothing of it. I didn't think like Kanye was actually going to really, you know, rock on anything. And um, 
<clears throat> around when, I, when the album dropped, I didn't make the album. Then around November, uh, Ricky called me and was like, uh, they did a Christmas song on one of your beats. And uh, I just was like, I was like, first of all, I sent so many beats. I was like, what beat is that? Like, and I was like, I make Christmas music. Like, what the hell? I didn't, you know what I'm saying? I didn't think about that shit like that. But yeah, it turned out to be Christmas in Harlem, and that that was our first collab, like that we got off. So you subsequently made, um, and this is the first thing that ever put you on my radar was when you dropped on SoundCloud the Christmas. Instrumental oh, yeah, EP yeah. with the, it had the with, instrumental on it. Yeah, with a little drummer boy join, oh, and yeah. so did that happen after Christmas in Harlem had been recorded? Yeah, uh -huh. that that was after because I ended up putting the Christmas in Harlem instrumental on that tape. Yeah, so was and that was what inspired you to do that? I, I always thought that that was so clever. I just I was like, man, let me just do something with this moment. You know what I'm saying? Like it's Kanye, it's good music. Like I might as well just make some of it. It's crazy people still bring that up too. When you started working with Kanye, do you remember what beats or what what set of beats um, sort of drew him to wanting to go into business with you on that level? Um, I don't know. I just remember Ricky saying that he like you know my my stuff sounded authentic. Like it didn't sound like too like industry driven. Like I'm trying to make a pop radio hit. Like I just kind of just go off the feeling, and uh, I guess that that was really what drew you know, us in, but I remember, uh, man, it's crazy because at the time, like, I just looked at it like, I'm gonna pull up with some beats or I'm gonna make some beats while I'm there and we go in, but he, like, he had this method of, like, oh, I'm, I like this piano part from this guy and I like this bass line from this guy, drums from this guy, I'm gonna give you all these pieces and you reconstruct it. At the time, I didn't really compute that. And, and exactly, I didn't know what exactly he was trying to accomplish, but that's what a real producer is, taking all those parts and, and reformulating it. I was just kind of, I guess, still coming out of the beat maker mode. Like, that was me really learning what production was, like me linking up with him. I remember the first files he gave me was for Liftoff on Watch the Throne. That's the first thing we ever sat down side by side at FL and you know, touched up, worked on. And it was just like, he kept getting frustrated because I, I was trying to understand what he was saying, but I didn't really understand it at the time. So it's just crazy to see like, wow, this is it's kind of like my whole style now, just getting the right pieces and putting them together. At that point, you, you start linking with Ye, you sign the deal with Good Music. It's a two-year production deal. Mm -hmm. What is the nature of that kind of arrangement? Uh, we just had it set up to where he, like, he got a percentage of the stuff I was doing, and that was the trade-off, really. But I, I already had a, a manager at the time, so people don't see that I was giving up 20% to my manager, 20% to Kanye, and another 10% between lawyers and accountants. So I was really thugging, really hustling at the time. I was Half of my money was gone, let alone taxes. So I was really getting like 25% of my money at the time. And it was really, that that was like my, you know, going, paying my dues, I guess you could say. Just the trade-off was being able to have that brand energy from good music and how crazy Kanye was going at the time. Do you feel like in retrospect it was worth it? Yeah, for sure. The relationships I developed, being able to make a niggas in Paris click, all the stuff that we collaborated on, like it definitely catapulted me to a, a different respect level.
like, was his reaction to the Paris beat instant, or did you? Was that part of a group of that beats was you gave? Part of a group of beats in an email, like probably probably out of hundreds. You know what I'm saying? And somehow they was he probably was on a super wave out in Paris and pulled the beat up. The room probably went crazy because just that tempo and that wave and the way it hit is just different. So did you hear that record um, before he got in there with Mike Dean and they started adding, you know, the backwards stuff and all that? I heard the song at the um, Observatory in New York. That was my first time hearing it with the <laughs> whole album. So like after it played, uh, what's the second song on there? Uh, no Church in a Wild. Yeah. And then that shit came on and everybody lit up. I was like, oh, this shit different. Like, you know, because to me, I was looking like, man, like, why did they pick this simple beat? Like, that's how I was looking at it at the time. And I just really caught an understanding for like, oh, okay, this is this what we on. Like, this is like the next wave. So when you made that, that record, it was just kind of like, just a little sketch, an idea, and then move on to the next thing. That's it. I didn't think that highly of it at all. So that's the beautiful thing about life, you know? It be beats that I put my heart and soul into and just, like, people, you know... I mean, not to say I didn't put my heart and soul into that, but just, like, it might have been a quicker process or less thought about the things that I'm sitting there trying to really, you know, be too anal about. That shit don't ever work out. On the surface, everything was working out for Hitboy. He was working with good music, the hottest click in rap. And he wasn't just landing placements, he was making smash hits. But he was still eager to explore new opportunities that would allow him to stand on his own, a decision that would ultimately prove as significant as his initial meeting with Ye. From 2011 to 2012, you had a fairly epic run within that crew, um, producing stuff for... Push, Cuddy, uh, Big Sean. Um, John Legend. Yes. Um, and then in the summer of 2012, um, while Ye was trying to finish up Cruel Summer in Hawaii, you dipped out and went to work with Beyonce. Mm-hmm. When you got on that plane, did it ever occur to you in a million years that that decision would have any ramifications? Um, not for real. I just was... It was, emotions was running high, not just with me, with pretty much everybody out there. People was getting frustrated. It was so many songs being passed back and forth, and it was just a lot being lost in translation. So I just took it up on myself to be like, man, this energy is just not it. I'm dipping out. But I had already been up there working with Beyonce before that, you know what I'm saying? And um, yeah, I think... With the second time I came, that's when he showed up. He didn't know I was there. Like, cause I remember him playing click for everybody for the first time. And that was my first time hearing it too, uh, at the Beyonce sessions. And I didn't, you know, I didn't think it would be like nothing that deep, you know, for real, for us to like not be working no more. But, you know, shit, I mean, I don't know the personal shit between them. When you reflect on that now as a, you know, much more grown man, do you regret? That decision? Nah, I had to go through that, man. I had to understand it. Also, like, you know, a lot of things I went through made me understand my power, made me understand that I don't, I don't really necessarily need nobody. Like, it's all about me doing the things that got me here, like, which was being in the crib or in the stool, damn near by myself most of the time, just coming up with the best thing I thought was 
appropriate for that moment. And um, yeah, that's kind of like, that's my whole approach now. Like I, I don't force nothing. I'm, I haven't been in a label meeting in so many years and I got more placements than so many producers, you know what I'm saying? And it's just like, because I took that power back, I, I understand it's about me and it's about what I'm doing to push myself forward, how I'm balancing out, you know, artist relationships and stuff like that. You and he had a conversation about this and he told you that he was not gonna work with you anymore as a result of that. In that moment, being 23, 24 years old, did you feel like it could be over for you? No, I didn't, because I mean, the whole thing was when I was at the end of my good music situation, uh, Kanye was trying to be involved in, you know, what I was doing with Jimmy Iovine and what I was doing with Interscope. Jimmy had, I had a meeting with him and he was like, man, it's time for you to be on, man. Like, you made some great music with him and you made great music with a lot of people, but like, here's the keys to the things you want to do. Here's the budgets for the stuff you wanted to do. And, and this is, that was just, uh, I look at it like I went to college with Jimmy Iovine's, uh, advances, you know what I'm saying? Like I really got to get in there and get my hands dirty and learn and learn not just about the music, but about balancing artist relationships, about myself, like trying to produce for four or five artists, produce for myself, produce for major artists. It just was too much for a 24, 25 year old with no proper infrastructure. I don't feel like I had the right manager. Don't feel like I had a, a lot of the right people around me at that time. So, but that was all <clears throat> to get me to this place where I'm at now. What was the motivation to step out after having such a successful run as a, as a producer to be an artist? I always looked at it as the same thing because all through this time I was recording my own music. I never stopped to record my own music. I just ended up, uh, I guess you could say, blowing up with the production. Like people just rocked with the beats. And um, I mean, I don't know. Like I, I kind of, I look at somebody like Travis, like before he, like, you know, got on, like, he already knew what he wanted to do visually with himself. He already knew how he wanted to dress, how he wanted his braids to be. He wanted, he, I didn't, I just was so focused on just the music. And that's where I feel like as an artist, the translation might have got lost versus like somebody like Travis or I didn't see, I mean, I've been in the game. I watched Frank Ocean before he was even an artist. I watched so many people who understood what they needed to be doing aesthetically as well. And that's something that I'm, you know, tapping into, you know, I've been tapping into the last few years and matching that with the level of the music. You know, in, in that 2014, 2015 period, um, again, you, you continued to have some notable standout hits like Trophies, Jumps to Mind, um, you know, and uh, obviously the Backseat Freestyles was a, a huge placement as well. Mm. Um, but it did seem like you were cooling off relative to that 2011, 2012 era, you know, being in your mid-20s and I imagine probably hypersensitive to how you're being perceived. Mm -hmm. What did that feel like? Um, I went through my times, man, of being super frustrated, feeling like, yeah, I do see that me not having the brand energy of like good music and Kanye, it, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a real climb up. Like, it's not like, I just get placed on this pedestal 
because I'm me, you know what I'm saying? Like I had to really learn that and and like I said, like that shit really led me to taking my power back because I, I feel like I gave too much power to being attached to, you know, uh that big the big label or whatever the case was or the big name. Like you really gotta get in the trenches and just become great. Have you ever had a big idea but lacked the tools to implement it? Look no further than Shopify. Shopify is the brand that powers all your favorite clothing, beauty, and sneaker brands and offers the best-in-class commerce tools to allow you to sell online, in person, and on all major social platforms. Shopify fuels millions of entrepreneurs and turns ambition into action. Check out shopify.com idea to learn more. Now back to the story. Do you recall like a specific moment that you felt like things started to turn and you started to be able to grab that power back? I'm gonna say things started to turn like 2016 around when I started working on the Half a Mill tapes with Dom Kennedy. Just seeing his independent spirit, his independent grind like inspired me because I was coming off of getting all this crazy overhead from these labels and working with Jimmy Iovine, working with all these people. And then, you know, seeing somebody who pay for everything out of pocket and they doing everything themselves like that, you know, that just showed me like it's, it's different ways. Like he driving a sports car too. Like he got his own crib too. So it's like, it's different ways to get it. And um, just tapping in on just that, that, that mental just like, um, again, like, you know, this shit is all about you and what you doing, what, what you pushing next, like how you pushing yourself. So, yeah, just like 2016, that was like the real turn for me. The music industry, like I think most entertainment industries, is very, what have you done for me lately? Yeah. Have you felt that energy towards you shift over these years? Yeah, for sure. Like I was when I was like 2014, 2015. Like you know, I had I did like feeling myself. Um, I did like the flawless remix. I did a bunch of stuff like on this Beyonce project. And now I look on Twitter and then motherfuckers be like, "Oh, Hitboy fell off." I'm like, "Motherfucker, I just produced and co-produced on Mad records for Beyonce. I'm doing all this other shit." But it's just like like I said, the brand energy of being with good music under Kanye, the spotlight definitely was. Not there. It was like all about, you know, like, what are you doing next? Like, what, you know what I'm saying? Like, not being able to use that crutch, I guess you could say. Does that sort of chatter from the outside ever get to you? It used to. Now, I literally, I mean, I didn't see thousands of comments about myself. Like, I don't give a shit what nobody got to say. Like, it's like crazy. Like, I just feel like I just did some historic, unbelievable hip hop shit with helping. King's, King's Disease and executive producing that, Nas getting his first Grammy, and you still got motherfuckers that are complaining about that on Twitter. It's just like, okay, you can't please nobody, like literally. So, you know, you know, back in the day when I was younger, like you said, just um, the hype, I'm being hypersensitive and 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 just like, damn, like I'm doing all this work and y'all still not putting it together. And I feel like that, that's what led me to having a tag now and, and really tapping in on my brand. Like I said, I didn't have that complete vision. It was just music. Like, I just want to be great at the music. And that, that worked out for me, you know what I'm saying? Because now I'm able to align everything around what I'm doing with the music. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, in that period where you were sort of laying the foundation, that 2016 to say 2018, mm -hmm. you're working with Nipsey, um, still getting 
beats off, you know, more than frankly most people do. Right. Um, but doing it somewhat quietly. Um, how far ahead were you in, like, in your own, in your mind's eye, in sort of plotting what the next years would look like? I mean, you gotta think about this. Like, uh, I had to hold on to Sicko Mode from 2016 to 2018. Like, I had the beat, I knew Drake was on it because Travis played it for me over FaceTime the day they did it. And it's like, you got people on Twitter saying you fell off, but you got shit like Sicko Mode in the tuck or uh, having a bunch of records with Jay-Z and Beyonce that I don't know if ever gonna see the light of the day. I'm having, I'm, I'm having the records that I'm, I'm, I'm going in these rooms with certain people that's like, you know, praising what I do, but then the outside world is not really computing it. That was real frustrating for me too. But um, I already saw the future because I was working on it, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like, like I said, like, you know, you can't please everybody, but if you know what's going on, that's that's the power, that's the, that's, that's the win in it. By 2016, Hitboy was a decade into his career, five years removed from his breakout hit, and finally asserting control over his career. He sought a new blueprint for success, branding himself with a producer tag and crafting full projects with rappers like Big Sean, Benny the Butcher, and Nas. But it was his collaboration with the late Nipsey Hussle that would reignite his career and put him back in demand. What was the record that you think that the public finally started to see the vision that you had. You mean like recently? Yeah, like what was, you know, man, was it I feel Rax like, in the Middle? Yeah, like, I feel like Rax in the Middle was like, okay, Hit Boy is he taking it there, like full-fledged. Like, to me, I felt like Rax in the Middle was Grammy level the day it dropped. Like, that shit sound like Chronic 2021, you know what I'm saying? Like, it sound like the next level of the shit I grew up on. And that, that really, that also, like, you know, helped me understand, like, man, like I'm, I'm really doing this on a different level, like just really helping guide that record from start to finish, and coming out getting received well. It's like a, it's a to me, it's a classic, especially a hood classic, and uh, for it to win a Grammy, like it's like man, I saw this vision before it happened, so it's like let me just keep doing this, and every song on King's Disease, same shit, every song on Benny's album, like materializing and just you know just. Uh, just making that whole vision come to life. One of the things that I think really laid the foundation for where you are today during that 2018-2019 period was doing that collaborative album with SOB RBE. How did you decide that you were going to do your first whole project with them? Um, the crazy part is I've been doing whole projects, you know what I'm saying? But that was my first uh, uh First one on like a, a major, like as far as in my new situation. With, Where with you Dem put Jam. your brand forward yeah, like exactly. that too. Um, I don't know, man. I just kind of like just being hungry, just like, you know, to, to, to get my vision off and just seeing what they was doing, the energy they had, that, 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 that gangster Bay Area shit. Like, I feel like it was, it was good for that time. And uh, we was able to make something that, you know, the people that, that have heard it and people that understand it, like they respect it. Absolutely, it's a great record. Um, so, what was the next? What was the first of this run of executive produced projects that you committed to seeing from beginning to end? Um, it's crazy because even before I started working on Nas, I already had some of the Benny records. Like Benny was pulled up on me for a minute, and um, 
I wasn't really looking at, I guess. I mean, we had came with the idea to like make a tape, but I just was so in the zone with, you know, I'm working with Big Sean like every other day. Like he raps at a high level. He raps on beats that you shouldn't even be rapping that good on. Like people would get, you know, certain beats that he gets on and just turn on auto-tune and say the first thing that come to mind. He gonna say some prolific, you know, you know, thought-provoking type shit. So being locked in with him, you know, that led to just me understanding, uh, um, I guess you could say, like the focus is gonna take, you know what I'm saying? Like to really, to really push everything over the line. Like working on Benny's album, that just, it just, everything just shaped up real organic, man. I don't know. Like it's just, it kind of felt like uh, just everything I've been doing over the years just all rolled into one ball and it's like the most powerful version of Hit Boy. Um, you know, when you, you mentioned when you first sold that first beat to, to J-Lo, you've still now, 15 years later, never met her. Yeah. Um, when did you make the transition from just being a guy that emails beats to being a guy that's in the studio, you know, coaching vocals and really like digging in on the idea side of things? Uh, that's been a process because, I mean, I was doing that at that time. Like, me and Chase had a studio in Atlanta. Polo was so popping. Everybody came through. It was a bunch of artists. We would sit there. We would play records. We would make records with a lot of the up-and-coming artists, like, even ones that, you know, you probably might not ever even hear of now, but just, like, whoever had a deal, who had a budget at the time, it was getting sent through to, to make some stuff. So I've always been on that, trying to lock in on understanding how to layer up music, bring live musicians in and stuff like that. Like, I, that's been a, you know, but really getting into, like, the vocal side, man, I had a session. I forgot what year this was. I, it probably was 2015. I had a session, uh, and, and the guy who owned the studio, I can't think of his name. He's an older guy. He had a studio in the Valley, and he was like, we just randomly start having a conversation, and I'm, was just talking to him about production and, you know, he'd been in the game for so long and he told me that if you really want to stay in the game, you got to learn how to produce vocals. You got to learn how to make a good song over, you can't just have a good beat. And I think, yeah, that was like six years ago and that's what made me be like, okay, I got to super focus on how to make like a good song, you know what I'm saying? Versus just dropping beats off or emailing beats or even just pulling up with beats. So. You know, I know from being at Def Jam, Sean had a lot of the album done by like the summer of 2019. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a berserk with you. Yeah. But th there weren't as many records, and it didn't feel like it was as dominated by Hit Boy as the final version that would come out a year later. Mm -hmm. What was it about your rapport with him that made you guys lock in and, you know, bring the entire thing together? I think uh, him just seeing the zone that I was in, my hunger, my passion, how much different stuff I was working on. <clears throat> I mean, we talk pretty much every day, so he's getting filled in. He's understanding like the levels I'm, I'm taking into, and it just was a mutual respect. I mean, we got a song that's like four times platinum, so that was one of the first records we made. You know what I'm saying? And uh, it's kind of it's just a no-brainer. Being a producer, you have to be an artist but you also have to coach an artist. Mm -hmm. How do you balance those two priorities? Um, I just try to be honest as I can and be real as I can, but still just, you know, leave the floor open to all opinions, all ideas. I don't shut nobody down, but I'm also 
voice something if I have to say it. That, like, that was another thing, just even as a being a reserved human being, I had to work on that, being in the studio and really, you know, it's funny. Um, Big Sean, we had went out to a dinner, like just all the homies. It was uh, my boy G. Rye who produced Laugh Now, Cry Later. It was his Grammy party. And Sean made a toast and he was saying, like, he looks at me as like a coach, you know what I'm saying? And that's crazy when I look at my style in the studio with people, it is kind of like a legit coach, just. And um, yeah, I'm taking that a whole, I'm taking that to a, to a different level now and understanding that's a big responsibility. Do you still have aspirations to be an artist yourself? Oh man, I'm, I am an artist. Like that's 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 in my DNA. Like I was literally just over there before I came over here listening to. I dropped uh, a project called the Chauncey Hollis Project, and this was when I found out my son was you know gonna be born. I was gonna name him C3 Chauncey the Third. Like I, I was like I gotta make a project that when I'm gone he could listen to it, be proud of it, understand his name, his background, and um, you know I make my I make my projects, I make my albums, and I'm forever. I'm I am, I'm an artist. I feel like the production side is my artistry as well. Uh, well, to that point. How has fatherhood changed your sort of thoughts about work, both the process and also your your ambitions and your aspirations? Yeah, like we was just talking about the pandemic helped me out a lot because, you know, it gave us that reset. I was just so in that zombie mode of I'm getting here at this exact time every day. And, you know, just being able to really get that reset, even though I still was working you know, back and forth from the studio. A lot of the times I would be at the crib and um, just prioritizing that time. Like I, I worked on Lithuania with Travis and Big Sean at the crib. Like after Travis did his part, his part I took it to the house, reproduced it, added some stuff for Sean to hop on and it just turned into a whole movie and I still got to be at home, like, you know, feet away from my, my son. And that just opened my eyes, man. Like. That is it's definitely something bigger than me now. Like, you know, I got to work for a future for him, so, like, he ain't don't have shit to worry about. So, one of the more remarkable things you've done in the last 12 months is craft an entire album with Nas, which would end up delivering him his first Grammy. Nice. How did that process even happen? Um... Man, I uh, I saw Nas in the studio on my my homeboy Double on his story. He posted on his story. It was in the studio with the homie OG Parker, and I just hit I just hit my boy, and I was like, man, you got to get Nas over here to the studio, bro. Like, I got I just got the shit for him right now. Like, I know I do. They came through the next day. And he was saying that he wanted to do like a, like a little EP for Valentine's Day, like some, you know, which is why we ended up with All Bad with Anderson Pack. We ended up with Replace Me with Don Tolliver and Big Sean because we kind of started on a more lovey-dovey type of vibe. And then it turned into us making like the King's Disease intro, making Blue Benz. That's when it was like, hold up, this shit ain't, this ain't regular. Like we got to keep this going. And it just became an organic, natural thing. At what point did did he propose to you? I'd like you to see this project through from beginning to end. Man, it kind of never was. It was an unspoken thing. It was just like, bro, I'm pulling up. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm gonna hit you tomorrow. Boom, I'm gonna hit you tomorrow. It just kept being that. Every day he would just keep coming through, and it just like every time he pulled up, we was making some fire, and it just was undeniable. 
I mean, you mentioned the, the sense of competitiveness. Uh, you know, Nas has some of the most sort of cherished and celebrated records in the entire genre. Mm -hmm. Did that put a, a, a fire in you to deliver a certain caliber? Yeah, for sure. And he's from New York. You know, I know New Yorkers don't think like people from California. I'm from California. And I wanted to give him something that felt like authentic to him, but just with a fresh twist. Like, was, you could still hear remnants of my style in there, but it's like, oh, Nas don't sound out of place. He don't sound like the beat drowning him out or nothing like that. It's like, you could clearly hear every word. And that, that was just a, a real focus of mine on making sure that not just you know, that it wasn't just all my personal taste, but what everybody else could enjoy too. When you're making beats, some, you know, you use samples sometimes. Sometimes mm -hmm. you have sort of simple melodies. Other right. times you have full things with session players. Um, how do you, like, what is your approach to even building a beat? I don't really have a specific approach. Like, I'm, so it doesn't I'm start, always start with the drums or. Nah, I go, I go, you know, on, on both sides of the spectrum. Like, sometimes I might start the melody first. Sometimes I might start the drums, but uh, whatever sound, like, I, I don't know. I just got a weird ear. Like, a lot of the beats get started from the most obscure sound that you might not even fully be paying attention to when the full beat is done. But um, yeah, I try to just put some soul and some, some energy uh, behind something that just sounds like something you never heard before. Are there any producers working now that make you feel competitive? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of people doing their thing, man. Uh, a lot of the producers from Detroit that's doing a lot of like the underground stuff for PZ and Rio, like they got some crazy 808 patterns. They come in with some new styles. Um, um, man, it's, a, it's, a, it's too many people to even think about. I was going to say, in addition to that, you've been now, you know, as a working musician for long enough that several different styles have come and gone. Mm -hmm. How do you maintain staying on, on the, the sort of cutting edge? Because I put the music first. Like, I'm not looking at the latest style on the radio, even though... You know, I just have a natural soul, like I could tap into that, but as long as the music bad, the music sound right, whether it's a simple Niggas in Paris type melody or whether it's the chords on Car 85, like, as long as you got something that's going, just keep the pulse going, like everything else could be built around that. What's the most important element necessary to make a hit record? It's, all, it's everything. Every sound matters, every little detail, the way you place the drums, the way you place the hi-hats, the way you place the vocal, everything matters. Like, it's not, you know, it's not one thing or the other. Do you feel like you have a gauge on how, or what records the audience is gonna gravitate towards? Um, yeah, because I play my music for people. Like, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I have people to the studio, I see what people react to, you know what I'm saying? And uh, kind of just, and, and, and when I get in my car, sometimes I just know, like I'll be by myself and I'm like, oh yeah, this, when people hear this, there's no way to deny it, you know what I'm saying? Do you see yourself going back to producing individual tracks? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still doing that. Like, I got some singles dropping next month, a couple big singles. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm all the above. I'm not. I mean, even like I said, with the, with me executive producing King's Disease and Detroit too. Like, all that just came organic. Like, we did Berserk, and that was like our one that we was like, oh, this is tight. Like, we should put this out, and it turned into more and more joints than him asking me for, you know, my opinion on the songs that I didn't even touch. Like, what do you think about this? How can we make this better? It just turned into that gradually over us just continuing to connect. Same with Nas, you know? But I'm, bro, I'm, I'm doing it all. Like, singles, albums, whatever, whatever you need me for. Like, you know what I'm saying? You're now in your mid-30s, clearly peaking in your career, but with quite quite a bit left before one thinks about retirement. What's next? What's next is um, just more quality music, man. Just pushing myself even better beats. You know, that's the beautiful thing. Like, to me, it's like I made some great beats, but I'm still getting better. I'm still getting nicer. Like, Jay-Z getting nicer. You know what I'm saying? Nas is in a crazy form, like, like, it's just crazy to see that, you know, people that's been doing it, like, and we never seen it in hip hop for somebody to be 50 years old rapping an amazing verse, like how Nas and Jay-Z is doing and all these people, it's just like, it's, it's infinite possibilities. And when you love the music and you a real person, like you always gonna just keep going to that next level. Have, having been successful, and then seeing things go away a little bit, and then achieve it again. Does the success give you any anxiety? Hell no, it just make me stay foot on the gas. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I understand momentum. That's another thing. Like, it's like a, like sports, like it's gonna swing sometimes. So while you got the momentum, you better smash, you know what I'm saying? And that's what I'm on. Like, that's why it's just been nonstop. And it's about to get even crazier this year, I feel like. Was were there times in that period when you were cooler that you felt like I don't know where to go? Yeah, because I was trying to be like, oh, I need to make ten more niggas in Paris, or I need to make ten more of this record, or whatever the case is. Like, cause I'm watching, or you know, watching like Lil John, or watching certain people who beat sounded similar, and they just had this crazy run. I was like, oh, I need to do the same thing, and that that puts uh, just a pressure that you don't even see on. Now I'm showing up to the studio like I'm about to make the hardest beat I can right now. And then if an artist pull up, we're going to put a song on it and then keep it pushing to the next one. Have you dealt with that a lot? Where obviously you've had these hallmark tracks that people think of. Paris, trophies jump out to me like I can hear them in my head. Where then the next artist comes to you, but not because they want the, some new hit boy shit. They want... A, a redux of something that you did previously. Yeah. How do you deal with that? That's frustrating, like, uh, when people come to you and be like, oh, I want a record like this. First off, as a creator, I'm a true creative. Like, I, like that's why all my beats sound different. You know what I'm saying? I obviously get bored with doing the same thing. But also, I'd be like, man, if I would have played you the niggas in Paris beat, you wouldn't even pick it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you would have not picked this beat. Like, people, a lot of people can't hear what the beat is actually doing until it's a rhyme or a vocal melody, something on top of it, which is something I also had to grow into understanding. Like, you know, I played the niggas in Paris beat for at least 10 people, nine, 10 people, and they had a bunch of them passed on it. But it was divine, you know, time and divine order for it to be 
for Jay-Z and Kanye, you know what I'm saying? Like, I would be pissed off if I gave it to certain people, like, you know? Are there any records that you feel like should have been bigger than they were? Uh, man, for sure. Grinding my whole life, first off. Like, my pops was on it. Real life story, real gangster shit going on. And I just feel like it got overlooked. Like, that whole moment, just that whole moment got overlooked. You know what I'm saying? G-Unit jumped on that and mm -hmm. made it a, uh, what I thought was a very listenable record as well, mm -hmm. utilizing a lot of what you had built in terms of melody and song structure and whatnot. Yeah. Was that exciting or frustrating? At first it was exciting because I'm like, oh, that's dope. But then I seen certain people like, oh, th that's G-Unit song now. Whoop-de-whoop just being disrespectful with it. I didn't look at it like, oh, they really trying to take our style right now. You know what I'm saying? And um, it's just, you know, it is what it is. Like, um, timing is a motherfucker. The entertainment industry typically is very exploitive and takes advantage of young talent. Mm -hmm. You know, having been through that ringer yourself, what advice would you give to a young person who is, you know, at, sort of at the mercy of those, those powers that be now? Uh, I mean, if you already in the situation, just, you know, be adamant about trying to figure out, you know, what that right team is that's going to help you, you know, get out of the predicament that you're in. But if you're not in a situation, patience is number one. Like, just be patient and, and believe in yourself. Just know that if you really lock in on the craft, lock in on the music, like, that's going to take you everywhere you need to be. Like, people will sell it like you need some big manager or you need this person or whatever the case is. But, you know, there are helpful people that do come along and you got to utilize people just like the way they utilize you and your talent. But um, just, be, just be patient and know that, you know, if you really love, like, the music, love what you do, like, everything's going, the money, everything you want is going to come full circle. What role does ego play in making music? Man, it's such a crazy thing balancing the ego because some days you will be in the studio like, damn, I'm like the coldest ever. And then other days you'll be like, man, I'm trash. Like, this shit is like crazy. Like, I go, you know, I still go through my certain moments where I'm like, man, like, I got to really go harder. Like, I'm not going hard enough. And then sometimes I'm like, man, I'm, I'm going crazy. So um, that's that's all balancing the ego and, and understanding that it's, it's a big music world. It's a lot of people making music. It's a lot of great people making music. So you got to always understand that everybody, uh, other people got shit up their sleeve too. You just got to do your best, leave it all on the floor and just keep it pushing to the next one. Thanks for checking out the Idea Generation podcast featuring Hitboy. We hope Hit Story taught you a little bit about believing in yourself through the ups and downs and always continuing to hone your craft along the way. Thanks to our sponsors at Shopify. If you're looking to start your own online store, check out shopify.com slash ideas, trusted by millions of businesses worldwide. What is success? Success is being happy. <laughs>